Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me in this year's In Conversation With. And this year, I'm delighted to say I will be joined by the multi-award winning Gabriel Byrne, who began his career here in Ireland and who has appeared in dozens and dozens of films, ranging from Swashbuckling, The Man in the Iron Mask, um, Lionheart, to comedies, to Irish films into the West, uh, which reunited him with Jim Sheridan many years ago. And I guess um, his breakthrough film, of course, would have been Miller's Crossing, um, for those of you with an, an international bent. And of course, The Usual Suspects, a fantastic performance in that film. Um, but I think when he, when Gabriel first came into our consciousness, consciousnesses, if that's a word, um, it depends what vintage you are, because some of us, myself included, will of course remember his first time on screen ever in the long running soap opera, The Reardons. He came in at the tail end of that and then graduated to appearing in Bracken. And that's where I remember him from. Um, but uh, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. So I'm delighted to welcome Gabriel Byrne to the Galway Film Flour. Lovely to talk to you, Kate. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving us some of your time. It's very generous of you and we appreciate it. We really do. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, unfortunately, it's not in real life in Galway because of this bloody pandemic. Um, but you have been to Galway before. This is not your first rodeo at the Galway Film Flour. No, I think I've been there three or four times, though not for quite a few years now. Um, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm very, um, I'm very familiar with uh, with the Galway flag, but also with Galway itself. Um, I have family connections there, and my sister lives there, and um, my nieces, nephews, and my mother used to live just outside the city uh, in Arranmore, which at that time was a little village, which is now subsumed into the greater Galway metropolis. I couldn't believe it when I was back there, but I suppose such is um, such is progress. Um, yeah, so um, the Galway film flies, you know, it kind of holds a special special place in my heart because I think for I don't currently the first man developing and, and growing and being uh, you know a well-respected uh, venue for for films yeah um, and I gather I'm not sure if it was your first visit here but did your mother make a show of you <laughs> at one, one, of, one of the question the dreaded question and answer sessions well yes um, my mother was uh, a fantastic woman but she was also um, somebody who, who wasn't shy about coming forward in the public arena. She revealed to the audience um, a story which I don't want to go into now, but which resulted in huge embarrassment for me in front of the Galway Film uh, audience. Um, and um, she got a round of applause for it. <laughs> I was mortified, but oh. such is... <laughs> That's, that's an Irish mammy yeah. for you, yeah. That's an Irish. That's an Irish mammy. Put you in your place. Yes. Keep you. Uh, keep, keep keep you down to earth. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Yes. 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 I know the type very well. <laughs> um, well, the reason I know about that is because, of course, I read your memoir, um, 
With great pleasure. Uh, I had absolutely no idea what a beautiful writer you are. It's just gorgeous. And I, so I read that uh, with enormous pleasure, really. Um, I thought, oh, this, this is no ghost autobiography. This is the real deal here. This is a real mm -hmm. voice, a good voice, a strong writer's mm -hmm. voice. Fantastic. Um, and I enjoyed every page. Was sorry when I got to the end. You know that feeling when mm. you don't want to let a book go. Uh, and then I have this uh, app for audiobooks and discovered you have another book, which I didn't know about, Pictures in My Head, which mm. was on audio. So I didn't have time to read it or to order it. So I decided I'd listen to it. And I'm so glad that I did because... You do fantastic impersonations of people. It's so funny. Your Richard Burton is one of the highlights of my listening week. I mean, it's just spot on. It's so good. And I laughed out loud. You say you, you first met him or ran into him at the Gritty Palace in Venice where he was mm -hmm. drinking, drinking Perno on the basis that mm. it was good for his brain cells. <laughs> right. Right. Um... You know, he was, um, I, I hesitate to use the word mentor because he wasn't really, but he was the first actor I'd had an honest conversation with who uh, set the world of acting in a bigger context, um, in, in a much more realistic context. Because he was Richard Burton, um, he had a lifetime of experience and gigantic uh, world fame at, at the time. And it wasn't, what, what he said to me wasn't in the way of I'm passing down great wisdom. To, it, was, it was an almost by the way uh, conversation, but I never, for, I never forgot it. And um, basically what it, amount, uh, what it amounted to was this, that you have to live your life first and that work should be secondary. That's tremendous. Like, even though I didn't understand the real depth of that remark, it's something that I've noticed again and again in the business that we work in, um, in that people put the, not just our business, but people put the work first and themselves to a great extent secondary to that. I think that's a mistake because um, work is work. It should be pleasurable. It should be fulfilling and it should be, uh, something that helps you develop and grow as, as a person, but it should never be an end in and of itself. And I also think that's true for, for people starting the business to realize that probably the most difficult thing I think about working um, as an actor is how you handle yourself when you're not working, how you take care of yourself when you're not you know, on call, because in, in, in a weird way, the, 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 there's a recognition of a structure. Whereas when that structure isn't there and your alarm goes at six o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning, you think to yourself, I don't really have to get up. And the beginning of um, a kind of descent into a confrontation that ultimately ends with oneself. Who, who am I outside this job? What do I need to live? It ties into the notion of identity. And identity is something which is developing and changing all, uh, all the time. You're not the same person at 16 as you are at 36 or 46. Um, so your identity 
can be bound up to such an extent in work that you lose sight who you are. Um, that is something Horton was warning against because he himself was, a, was in a way addicted to, to, to work. He would say that the job would finish, he'd be delighted to be finished it. He'd have 10 days, two weeks, three weeks or whatever to, um, you know, to rest and get back to so-called normality. But then the itch would start and he'd, he'd start, will I ever... Or will I ever work again? Will, when is the next film going to be? It's hard to believe that a man of that stature was actually saying things like, I can't remember how many films I've made, but I know that I have to be on the set. He was quite, he was quite frail when I worked with him because he had a very bad, um, he had a very bad kind of spinal injury, I, I, I think. But I never forgot that. Uh, that lesson and I tried to put it to the front of my uh, working life that this is a job yes. this is the way I make my living this is how mostly I gain satisfaction in working terms but the really important moments come when they say cut for the end of the thing or the curtain comes down for the last time I agree with you a hundred percent and I've always uh, thought that the most interesting actors are the ones who have a very rich outside life, outside of the business. I, I'm sure we've both worked with actors who are so consumed with the insecurity of when the next job is coming and who base their whole identities on their resumes. <clears throat> and they're frankly rather tedious. And I feel sorry for them because God knows even actors at the top of their game spend a huge amount of time being unemployed. And if you don't know how to fill that time, I think you're in a very sorry state indeed. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. But of course, <laughs> you would have had more experience, I think, than most with other types of work. Because, I mean, when you started off, you had a dizzying array of different jobs. And I, I think all of them, <clears throat> I think that's a great thing. You know, I think it can only benefit you as your identity. And ultimately, of course, as an actor, all of that has to be wonderful grist for the mill. And I'm just wondering whether any particular tasks or jobs that you think did serve you as an actor when you became an actor. This doesn't sound too pedantic. I think that all jobs require a certain amount of acting. It's what I, I think it was Camus who talked about the waiter, uh, the, 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 the waiter playing the role of the waiter. And in, in life, we, we all act to a great extent we we all have our roles when we come off the stage of life we go into the dressing room alone of our own heads our own lives and that's a different that's a different a very different reality so the jobs that i had were jobs that i took on seriously um because i thought that at that time uh, there was no career guidance there was nobody who said, well, what do you think you might be good at? And um, what would your ambition in life be? Nobody ever said that. They said it to you when you were four or five <laughs> in a kind of a condescending adult way. What are you going to be when you grow up? And the answer was usually, you know, something like, you know, a fireman or, or you know, train driver. But nobody after that seriously engaged with you in the notion of what you journey you might want to take in life. So you really know what, there was also a societal pressure 
in the sense that coming from a, um, a working class background, the emphasis was getting the good job, getting security, getting the pension. My father was talking all his life about the pension. And um, I had left school at 15 uh, initially, and I worked as a messenger boy in an office. And then I went into uh, plumbing. I could have made my way in the insurance business, and I could never have made my way in plumbing because I was truly a truly dreadful plumber or apprentice plumber. But I, I did quite a lot of jobs because I didn't know you could make a living out of acting. To me, um, actors and theatre, uh, where I used to go with a great deal of trepidation and nervousness to go into the hallowed halls of the gate theatre or the abbey, I would, I would stand outside being so nervous about going into those places. And you would walk up the steps of the gate and all these very famous... Uh, actors would be resting their heads on one hand, kind of glaring at you as you walked up the stairs. Um, yeah. And then people with after a mints, sharing the mints and uh, talking in very Leo's terms about what they'd seen on the stage. And it made me feel like, who, who am I to be in here? I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, but I, I love the way you write, very touchingly, really. I suppose you, you were quite fortunate in that your, both your parents had a love of theatre and brought you to the theatre. And uh, you were <clears throat> fired up by going to the Theatre Royal, mm -hmm. which must have been fantastic. I mean, that was a big house, wasn't it? A big seat. That was a big house, and it was also a venue for the biggest stars in the world to come. Uh, Judy Garland sang on her balcony to the crowds in the back alley behind the Theatre Royal. Uh, Bob Hope came there, Bing Crosby. Uh, Laurel and Hardy came to the, we were at the Olympia Theatre. <laughs> I, I don't remember that, but they, so, so is Gloria Graham. So Dublin was a kind of a, um, Roy Rogers came on his horse. It's hard to describe to a, like in a seven-year-old's head, you're reading this guy in a comic and, and he's in a comic. And the next thing you're in a theater and that horse comes out onto the stage, stands on its back, back legs and neighs. And the guy that you've seen in the comic for the last three years <clears throat> is on stage. Well, it's hard to beat that for influencing a kid, but it retained this aura of inaccessibility and magic. And... It was something way outside yourself. And I used to go to, <clears throat> I used to go to amateur theater quite a lot. And um, I didn't know that um, there was a difference between amateur actor and um, a professional um, actor. Um, but I saw great plays in the amateur theater and I was exposed to the theater by my by my mother, and she brought me to the old Abbey and the Theatre Royal. And then later, I started to go by myself, as I said, with with a great deal of trepidation. But I remember um, this connection. I remember uh, going to see Waiting for Godot at the Abbey with uh, with your dad and uh, Donald McCann, and I think Neil Tobin was in it. And we were in the plow afterwards i was i think i was at university at the time and i will never forget the door opening and mccann and your father and i can't remember somebody else with them 
they came through the door and it was like when a when a film stops and everybody is just frozen because it was like they were entering another and we were now the audience in this in god they're actors and that's peter and that's Donald mccann oh my god that's how far away the world of acting was sure yeah well i am um, me yes well i i'd grown up around Wondrous. backstage you know um so for me my spark was maureen potter at the gaiety that's what did it for me i remember the whites of my knuckles clinging to the seat in front of me to stop myself from running up onto the stage to be part <laughs> of that magical colorful mayhem and just yes. uh, it was it was more important for me well what we were witnessing there in that particular kind of um theater that you told me i i saw more Potter too jack cruz um, Danny Cummins, all those guys. We were witnessing authentic, old-fashioned variety theatre, which had its roots in the American vaudeville. And I met Maureen Potter years and years later, and she was always kind of a heroine of mine. She told me that she danced for Hitler. Yeah. And she just threw it out. And I said, no, hold on for a second. Come back here. You danced for Hitler? She was part of a delegation that went over there to Germany in 1934, 35, some kind of touring group the, the kind of comedy that they she used to have a, a, a character if you remember she was a dublin mother with this invisible song called christy yes and she said invisible song and as soon as she said she'd come on to the stage i stay the audience burst into applause because they knew this invisible child yes. from the radio um Jack Cruz, who wore his hat sideways and played a kind of a gom from the country, who always got the better of Dublin people. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 there was uh, there was something, uh, of course, comedy dates, most comedy dates, because it's an expression of its time to a great extent. I've always had a great fondness for variety and, and vaudeville mm. as a result of that. I'm sure you do, too. Oh, yes. And my father did. <clears throat> he had enormous respect for and knowledge of vaudeville i mean for him mm. that was essential knowledge and he could actually do quite a lot of the acts mm. he could do all kinds of things he, he said oh I, I can do the flag trick what's the flag trick when you pull you know one flag out of your nose and then blow the door <laughs> and then you fill the stage with that <laughs> you can do things like that yeah, um, yeah. yeah, he had a huge respect for it. And, you know, it's funny, though, that you mentioned uh, Maureen Potter dancing for Hitler, because mm. as we were talking about our early influences, I, I know that my father's, he wrote about it in his memoir, the biggest impact, his first experience of the screen and his urge to want to be on it himself came from Hitler watching the newsreels. And he was terrified of him. He was a boogeyman for those wartime children in Britain. I mean, the most terrifying figure you could think of. And yet he was transfixed every time he went to the cinema because he understood that there was some extraordinary power going on there that wasn't make-believe either. You know, there was an authentic um, energy. Well, going back to what, what we were talking about earlier, uh, Kate, the idea of processing an identity. Hitler was an identity too. He was also a fantastic actor. Yeah. And he was the first um, 
politician uh, to use radio and television, which gave him an enormous um, influence. Um, it was the first time propaganda had been used. Lenny Riefenstahl, in that way, Lenny Riefenstahl, who made that amazing film, Triumph of the Will, which presented Hitler as a kind of a god. And Goebbels presented the Third Reich and Hitler in particular as these um, like almost mythical characters. So in a way, the idea of being terrified by some kind of uh, malevolent character, and I know exactly what you mean, um, must have been to an, a young audience unused to being exposed to that kind of energy, as you say, must have been absolutely terrifying because I still find him terrifying mm. to look at. Mm. And yet there's an interesting thing that you can do. If you look up YouTube, there's a little thing that says Hitler talking normally. We're so used to him in that acting thing of shouting, pointing, and everything else, that when you actually hear him speaking, he's actually quite normal. You realize what an act that public performance was. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. As most politicians are. Most politicians right. are <laughs> actors supreme. That's right, yes. And uh, perversely or bizarrely, uh, I did a play once for Field Day, which Jim Sheridan directed, called Double Cross, which was about the Minister for Information for Churchill during the war, who was an Irishman, Brendan, Brendan Bracken. Bracken. And then also the radio stooge for the Nazis, who was Joyce, Warhol, Joyce two Irishmen, mm -hmm. opposite sides of the same coin. Yes, absolutely. I think and both uh, acting, acting their socks off. Oh yes, but to, I find what I find fascinating. I don't know about you. I love to watch public figures being public and and like watch their performances. Um, I've seen the reality of many uh, of five different presidents in America: Clinton, Obama, Reagan. Who was the other guy? There was one of them, and and, and Nixon. I saw all of those guys up close. Yes, Hitler in the newsreels, um, and of course the inherent acting and showmanship that goes into all political life now. Uh, you mm. mentioned Lainey Riefenstahl and the, the you know the early sort of media manipulators. I guess JFK would have been a classic example of he won the election because he looked better on screen than Nixon did. Well, yes, that's an interesting um, that's an interesting story in and of itself because um, they say that Nixon lost the election because he started to sweat in the middle of a um, of the debate with Kennedy. Kennedy looked tan and handsome and didn't sweat, whereas Nixon melted in front of the camera and lost the election. That was the first time I think that people realized you can win the election uh, almost visually. Uh, and by presenting yourself in a particular way. But I find when I watch politicians talk, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about politicians specifically mm -hmm. as, as actors, that so few of them are authentic because it makes you question their authenticity. If they're trying to present this character well-modulated, articulate, calm, uh, bipartisan, you long for somebody to come up and tell you the truth without any kind of decoration and just say, look, here's what's happening. And, uh, you know, there's no room for any humanity to get through. Mm -hmm. um, and my father always used to say about being on camera, he said, you know, you cannot hide 
on camera. You can't hide. Mm. You think you can, and they can do all their spin and their tweaking and their media lessons mm -hmm. and all that. But if you're not seeing, well, you can see. I think that's another you reason. You can see it. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why Nixon did lose that time, apart mm -hmm. from the physical appearance, the sweating. Mm -hmm. I think there was something about him that was shiftier than his opponent. Oh, absolutely. And people and could see that. People could see that. And they voted for Reagan because Reagan was an, a, an utterly empty, ambitious vessel who could uh, act sincerity. That's what he did brilliantly. He acted sincerely, and he was a, an utter amoral, insincere man. Uh, but people bought the cinematic image of of uh, of Reagan on the horse and the tall, handsome kind of guy who looked like he had your best. But there was a complete performance. And when George Bush came along, the difference, the the very thin line between politics and cinema had been eroded to such an extent that all he had to do was appeal uh, not to people's political passions or, 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 or opinions, but to the cinematic world that they knew. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And cinema has a huge influence on, uh, on how we think. We, we, we tend not to examine that too closely. But all Bush had to do was talk about us being the good guys and them being the bad guys. And people understood very well what that meant not because of their political um, knowledge, but from their cinematic training. Yeah. And Hollywood conditions political and cultural opinion far more deeply than, than, we, uh, than we allow it to, um, to yes. be. There's, a, there's an interesting uh, story about the development of public relations. Uh, Freud developed his theory of the collective unconscious. His nephew was a man called Edward de Bernays who came along in 1914 and understood that you can use co the collective unconscious to manipulate opinion. And he got America into the First World War because of that. The American population didn't want to go into the war, but he presented it in such a way, patriotism, and you've got it. When the war was over, business interests said to him, you think you could do that uh, for business, um, uh, you know, in terms of commercial, the commercial world? And he conducted an experiment. Up to 1918, 1919, women didn't smoke. He put out a campaign associating cigarette smoking with freedom. And by 1930, every woman was smoking because it, it was tied in with the notion of independence, freedom, and so forth. Goebbels came along, learned from that in Germany, and Madison Avenue learned from the Nazis, and on and on it goes, ever more sophisticated, so that we're now at the place where we don't know the difference between true and uh, fake. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Jack Nicholson who said that um, people should, uh, that, that cinema has replaced literature, that literature before radio even, literature was the way that the printed word was the way to influence people and to uh, in, inspire conversations. And he says, he, he really believes that cinema is the um, literary form of our day. I, I, I would probably disagree with that. I would say that the thing about literature, that up to a certain point, it was only a certain amount of people who had access to literature. True. Um, 
And so therefore, because of that, it reinforced the, the status quo to a certain extent. The, democ the, the democratization of knowledge is actually a good thing. But of course, the people who control the real power situations understand that, and you're getting the knowledge that they want you to have. Um, for example, why, why are we talking about players taking the knee? Why is that such a big deal? When actually, uh, it should be just, that's the way people express themselves, their support for a legitimate protest movement, big deal. But what Boris Johnson, for example, um, uh, you know, a devious clown who's gotten to this position of power, what he's brilliant at is diversion. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about my moppy hair. Let's talk about something else rather than the things that really, truly matter. We're 10 years away from the planet being obsolete. You look at the, the Channel 4 News last night, which is somewhat independent. Um, and and uh, Germany floods, the West Coast of America on fire. Mm -hmm. Why isn't this the headlines every single day and every newspaper? Because a scientist that I was listening to last week said, we don't have 10 years. And yet this is not the news. The news is about some diversionary piece of bullshit that nobody, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly being diverted mm -hmm. because the media is not living up to its responsibilities to tell the real truth about what's really happening. And that's as true for the arts as it is for politics, because the emphasis now in the culture pages to a great extent is on celebrity, mm -hmm. not on um, the, 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 the art form, whether it's cinema or theater or uh, literature or whatever. It's all about who's the celebrity that we can get on to be in some kind of a competition uh, to see who's the best. I remember there was an old actor that uh, I worked with and when we would be going on at the end of the, um, at the end of the play, he'd say to me, oh, it's time for who's best. So we'd all have to go on and, you know, get, get clapped and, and, and so forth. But this idea of engendering competition that, whether it's photography or cooking, it has to be a competition. And at the end of it, somebody has to be declared the winner and somebody has to be declared the loser. That is the nature of reality television. And it has extended into the arts. Mm -hmm. Now, kids now, I've worked with a couple of kids and I'm sure you have too, who get cast in films because of the amount of social uh, media followers they have. That is an absolutely shocking thing to me. Yeah, it's, but it but but it's about celebrity. You can yeah. now be famous for nothing. Yeah, and I don't think people half the time even know what they want when they want to be famous. Oh yeah, it's a career choice now. Yeah, right. Exactly. And and you seem to be the sort of person who was rather uncomfortable with fame and the labels that people stick on you. You know, they're just sort of icky to have to live with. They and are get, to have to live with. Yeah, and I get that impression from you that the last thing you wanted to be was famous, right? No, I, again, going back to Richard Burton, and um, and you would have seen this at first hand, uh, not just with your dad, but with the people that you you saw in in real life, how how this kind of thing um, uh, affected them. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. It just wasn't something that made me. 
very comfortable. It still doesn't. I still have some kind of a thing about it that it, it's not about, how do you describe it? I just don't like being the center of attention in that way. I don't want to be different to anybody else mm -hmm. for any reason. I want to be the same as other people. Um, unfortunately, I work in a business where that's part of the thing. But um, it, it's interesting what you say about labels. Mm. Writers get labeled. Actors get labeled. Um, if you're a woman in the film business, the label that's hung around your neck from a very early age is so predictable um, that it, it's almost laughable. When you take up a script and you read it and it says, she's, she's 26, she's hot, she's smart as nails, she takes no bullshit, she kicks ass. At that stage, I put down the script. Yes, yes. I say, I don't want to be in this thing. Yeah. Um, you know, they say or, the, yeah, the, 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 what is it? There are only a couple of phases to an actress's career. It's the hot, hot chick, um, district attorney, driving Miss Daisy. Just three things. Yes. And because women in film, and, and I suppose it's a reflection of the culture, are defined primarily by their physicality. Yeah. In a way that men are. I've been watching the things I came back here, uh, which I couldn't believe. I was flicking the channels on television when I, and I came across this thing called Naked Attraction. I don't know if you've oh seen it. Oh, my God. It's a show I on Channel 4. I've seen it. I just, well, oh, my God. I've seen it twice. Well, I, I had, I I had that same, yeah. <laughs> I had never heard of it. I had I that same reaction. I thought I'd, I'd, what I thought I'd stumbled into some weird punch out. What, what do you exactly, think? Exactly. I I th I, first of all, I thought, Jesus Christ, what, what next? Is this, is this as far down as it can go? And then I started to think about it. And I thought to myself, well, there's always a reason for everything. And trying to find the real reason for something is it's something that I like to do. So I look at this thing and I say, there's nothing remotely erotic about this. Nothing. There's nothing uh, unreal about it. What you're watching are real women's bodies, five different women's bodies, totally real. Um, now that in itself is interesting because the female body in films uh, and in the culture generally is usually manipulated in some form to give some kind of a, an impression that women, if they're not perfect, they should be. So you have somebody like Oprah Winfrey who's on the cover of her own magazine every month, airbrushed, and inside it's all about freedom and liberation and all the rest. Why do we take up magazines, look at movies, look at television, and say, oh my God, I wish I looked like him, or I wish I looked like her. And the man is sitting there saying, why does my wife look like that? There's something touching about the democratization of aging and of the reality of our bodies. It doesn't just concern women primarily. It also affects men. Well, they have men's bodies on that show too. They do. And they are, um, there's, a, there's a good thing about that too, that homosexuality, which you could have been jailed for, right. in, uh, which, which is a crime. The idea of making love a crime now looks barbaric. Mm -hmm. And movies, just like they have manipulated political thought, have also manipulated cultural thought in, uh, in the way that we think about each other physically. So I began to think of naked attraction as, not being a bad thing. 
I think young men now grow up with the idea that what sex is, is what they see and are exposed to at a very young age, 11 and 12 sometimes, they're watching hard pornography. And right. so they look, at the, they look at pornography and they think this is what sex is and this is what women are supposed to do and this is what you're supposed to do with women. And women are now looking at that and saying, oh, this is what boys want. So the idea of pornography replacing the, the lovely, mysterious journey that you go on in your first romance where you wonder, does she notice you? Does she see you? Did she really look at you trying to get your friend to find out, is there any way? And then working up the nerve to say, would you like to? And then, oh, my God, she's agreeing to go out. And you're demented with excitement and you don't know what to do. And then it's the first, would she, would she like object if I like leaned over to kiss her? Oh, my God. And your heart is going inside your chest. And the girl goes home and writes in her diary and locks it with a key. And no, but now you send pictures of your genitals to somebody. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess one of the things I really don't like about all this reality, so-called reality TV, is it's doing writers out of a job. There's not enough writing, you know, relying on people just to misbehave or be odd and become famous and then be able to sell products. Uh, it's, it's just infuriating that the writers are just dying on the vine. It's and a good point. It's a good point, Kate, because I think, again, the only true real that still retains independence is the theatre. But film and television uh, have moved more and more to the notion of sensation over complexity. I'm not saying that everything shouldn't be, should be like that, but there's also a place for human stories and complexity and reality and emotion and memory. You want to walk out of a thing and say, my God, that was incredible. And you never forget it. Yes. And like I'm we were sure talking about Maureen Potter. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And I'm sure that is uh, probably what attracts you uh, uh, to a script more than anything, I would imagine, is the writing, the written word. Um, because what you've just described as what films should ideally be about is exactly what um, I've just seen you doing in the film that we're premiering here, Death of a Ladies' Man, which is just a wonderful, hard look at serious subjects like addictions, uh, responsibility, accountability, loss, death, but does it with such a deft uh, touch. The writing is so unlabored and it's, it's, it's uh, I loved it. Um, and I thought your performance actually was really fantastic because I didn't realize you were such a good comedian. I, I did laugh an awful lot. Oh yeah, I thought I, you do some double takes there that are mm, delicious. I think if an actor can do a double take, you can do anything, you know? And, and like the Edmund Keane uh, phrase, which I think you managed to slip in is, is uh, dying is easy, comedy is hard. Yes. Yes. Um, I spoke to the director the other day and I asked him, given the pandemic, had he seen it in front of an audience? And he hasn't. Oh, right. And uh, I mm. felt the lack of an audience because of the comedic elements. I was hooting. I was laughing out loud so many times. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I really, I guess, wanted to ask you what drew you to that particular project? Was it, well, I guess the writing or, the, or is it sometimes the director or the other actors? Well, in this particular case, I was writing my book at the time and I had no interest in doing like um, I worked with this person and that person. I did that movie. I, I didn't want to do one of those things. And again, going back to your dad, I had read his book Loitering with Intent and I had read a couple of other books by people I, I admired and very few of them seemed to me 
to become to be coming from a literary place. The first book I read by an actor that felt he was in the flow of words and images and that it wasn't a kind of tightly controlled, you know, narrative about a star. Um, I felt he was writing from a literary place. And so I thought, because mm, I'd read Olivier's book and it, it was just, it was turgid. Yes. Um, it's a sort of and, careerography. Just a list of them. Yes, it's it's like I did this. And yes, and it was a, w- a weird way of distancing yourself mm. from the reader. Mm. It stayed with me for quite a and I reread it. And then this script came up and it was about a lot, a lot of the things that I was looking at. When you get to a certain age, you d- it's not that you look nostalgically because you realize you don't have time for nostalgia. Nostalgia is actually a, a complete waste of time and energy. It's nice to say that was a good time and that was a bad time and get on with the present because that's the, re- the only reality there is actually. And um, regret. What do you regret in life? Have you been a fully responsible person? How have you behaved to the people that you love? Have you been a good friend? Have you been selfish? Uh, how much are you the uh, recipient of genetics and your family history and, 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 and so forth? All the things that go into making you the person that you are. In other words, going back to what we're talking about, identity. Who are you? Who am I? And uh, it was also a look at love, what the notion of love is. What, what does it mean to love another person? I was wondering what attracts you primarily to doing a film. Is it the words, the script, or is it the people you would like to work with, directors or actors, or a combination of all things? I always look at the script to see what it's saying. Because ultimately, you know, it's it's about what ends up. And, and I've made decisions to of my career based on that. I don't know if that's the right way to do it, to be honest. Mm. Um, there were commercial possibilities I should have taken mm-hmm. that I didn't. Um, there were uh, independent worthy films that I did that maybe I shouldn't have done because five people saw them, but I thought, you know, there's something in this that I kind of would like to be able to be part of saying. I worked in Hollywood, didn't love it particularly. Um I'm drawn to what the writer is trying to say, really. Yeah. And if it's a good director, there's nothing worse than you read a script and it's good and then you get on set and you think, this guy doesn't know how to direct. We're all in the boat together and we're going to have to just try to row as best we can because there's nobody guiding this ship. And then, that is... Yeah, the rainbow-coloured scripts then with the rewrites, the pink pages, the yellow pages, the lilac pages, that's always a worrying sign. When when films are done by committee, you know, when you've got 10 people sitting around a table in LA who've just come from Equinox and they're 24 and 25 and they've never seen anything and are are saying, this is what we want. And so that's the problem with working on big budget films, I find. And I don't think that actors matter. Um, Actors generally, I'm saying this to an actor, I said, in the film business, actors are truly respected. Mm -hmm. The craft of the actor. And he said, well, I never really thought about it like that. And I said, I don't think they are. I honestly don't think that what the actor does is understood sometimes. They don't know what it is. A lot of directors don't know, don't know how to work with actors. They haven't a clue. They just think, oh, well, he knows how to do that. And I'll put the camera here. 
But putting the camera there requires great skill. And um, what is it that an actor does? He has to, by the very nature of the job that he does, surrender to a great extent to the director. Have you ever thought of writing a screenplay? I've tried. I'm not good at it. it Have requires... you thought of writing um, a novel? You, did... you wrote something, though, didn't you? I think I remember... Didn't you write one of T.G. Cahar's first Irish-speaking scripts? Yes, I, I, I did. It should have been a short story. I, I'm, I'm not uh, a screenwriter. I think that requires a, a particular set of skills that I don't, that I don't possess. I tend to think in a different way when I, when I write. I, I try to think of writing as a essential um, recall. Um, you know, I try to capture the sound, the sight, the smell, the feel of something. That's important to me. Um, so that when I, you know, wrote the book, I was going back into childhood and not saying, oh, this happened, that happened. I wanted to understand the sensual world of what it meant to grow up as a child. Because a child is silent uh, in terms of truly expressing who, they're, who they are. And you don't understand the world. And a lot of adults don't understand how children actually think and what it is that they absorb. Mm. Um, so I wanted to try to recreate that. As an actor, you're confined to one thing. And mm. if the director doesn't understand that, you can go down with the ship in a big way. Yes. Nobody stops the director and said, oh, you directed that thing. Uh, as, a, as, a, as an actor, you carry the can for the That's film right. because people will be be very uh, quick to tell you either through silence or through direct observation that they didn't think that that worked. We're all good, bad, and in and out. No, you were talking earlier on, Kate, about, you know, the master thing. The ma There's no master of acting. There's no master. There's no master of anything, really. Even a master carpenter will say to you, I still need to learn things. Um, you look at the great actors of, say, the generation who came up in the 70s and the 80s, American film actors. Look at where the women went. Sally Field was Tom Hanks's girlfriend in Punchline, and she was his mother 18 months later in a bed when he was dying of AIDS in that movie uh, about AIDS, Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, look at the men. Look at where Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, uh, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro are now. Look, look. Look at what they're doing. Because the truth is that writers in Hollywood, generally speaking, stop writing for people over the age of 30, unless they're writing star parts. They're not writing complex emotional roles for people who are, you know, growing older and have perspective on life and understand. That's why somebody like Bergman was brilliant. He would make a movie about faith and make it absolutely compelling. Of course, every movie can't be Bergman, nor should it be. But you look at a great, great actor like Robert Duvall, playing a, a stupid grandfather to Adam Sandler, and you think, what? <laughs> um, you, you look at, um, I mean, you can't, you, you can't intuit why, why an actor chooses certain roles. But I look at De Niro, who went from being the greatest actor of his generation to now people saying, what, you know, what is he doing? So there is no top of the mountain is what I'm trying to say. There is sure. no place where you plant your flag and say, that's it. Everything's done. I'm the master of everything now and everything I wanted to achieve, I've done. Mm -hmm. Because going back to the beginning of our conversation, 
it's part of the journey of our life our lives and we don't judge ourselves on how far up that mountain we've become because every actor that I've worked with and I'm sure you're the same they have all the human qualities that they bring to the page or the stage or the film camera the mm. insecurity the doubt the, the the fear like I worked with an actor and he said to me listen have a look in the have a look in the in the monitor there and and and, and see how how's my stomach very vulnerable very vulnerable moment yeah. And I went and I looked and I said, it's not much, but it's sticking out a bit. So he called the wardrobe woman and he said to her, listen, Gabe's just told me my stomach is sticking out. Can we do anything? And they went off into a little huddle in the corner and they put Spanx on him. And he came back and he said, I'm barely able to fucking breathe in this thing. How do people wear these things? He said, my voice has gone up about five octaves. But he said, I kind of feel better. Because I'm like a contained and I'm not spilling out. And, um, you oh, know, the glamour. Think, uh, the, the glamour of, of that kind of thing with people saying, uh, uh, would, would you mind not putting the camera over there? That's, not, that's my bad side. Well, we could certainly sit here for many more hours talking about life, the meaning of life, the meaning of acting meaning of words, um, and uh, I must just reiterate how much of a fan I am of your writing, I really am, and it's a, a subject that genuinely interests me because I know, and you know, so many great actors who are also wonderful writers, even Richard Burton with his diaries, they're just extraordinary, there's David Niven, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very long and distinguished line uh, for, of which you now join, because there is definitely a connection between actors and the words because there are just too many great actors who are great writers for it to be a coincidence there has to be a real connection there um and i'm i'm i, I must recommend to anybody who hasn't uh read it uh, gabriel's he has a wonderful memoir but for me i love the vignettes and the essays that you write in pictures in my head i think they are really beautiful i was um just blown away by them. You know, they're wonderful vignettes. They stand on their own. You, 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 there's one you describe a friend of yours who's an alcoholic who dies at the bar doing what he loved and it brought a tear to my eye. And it's just, please don't stop writing. Um, <laughs> you're a wonderful actor and a superb writer. And we are really, no, thank you no, so I mean much. it. And thank you so much for joining us here. Um, uh, as I've said before, Gabriel is in Death of a Ladies' Man, which is having its world premiere this year at the Galway Film Flower, and I recommend everybody to go and see it. I loved it. Um, I guess that's where we have to wrap up. Wrap up. <laughs> Sorry. I guess that's where we have to wrap up because uh, there's a busy schedule and um, I'm sorry we have to cut it off. I could definitely stay here for a very long time. But Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure, Kate. Thank you so much. And um, I'd like to say um, it was it was just nice to be able to talk about stuff off the um, off the general beaten path. Um, and thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, I hope that um, I hope the flowers a big success, virtual as it is. I hope that um, you know people um, who miss cinema and who love cinema will come together at least virtually to, to see the program that's uh, always so interesting at the Galway, the Galway Films Lab.